You can follow along on the screens as I read our scripture on which our sermon is based this morning from the Gospel of Luke. Friends, these words are utterly true and they're given to us in love. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in Luke 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we, we ask that you would come, you would open our eyes, you would touch our hearts, you would illuminate your scripture this morning to us and the beauty of the gospel. Forgive the preacher, he is a sinner but may we see Jesus because grace changes everything. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, if you are uh, new with us this morning, I want to welcome you. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to have you with us. Um, I know we've had a lot of new people checking out Orangewood. And if you're new today, I want you to know that you're not alone. It's great to have you with us. Um, it's actually a, a perfect time for you to be with us because this is a really important Sunday in the life of our church um, as we are kicking off a new sermon series called We Are Orangewood and where we believe God is taking us as a church into the next season and into the future and what that means and why that matters to you, uh, to Orlando, and to our world. And I want you to know that I've actually been praying for this day, today, uh, since last year, praying for this time where we would share what all has been happening. Um, last year, we developed a small team of Orangewood members uh, who would serve as part of a strategic planning team uh, to help us process uh, and think through this initiative for the future vision of our church. And their work was presented to 
our governing elders who unanimously voted in support. It was embraced by uh, all of our elders and deacons and staff. And that work is what we will be presenting starting today with our mission and our values starting next week. And uh, friends, I can't tell you how excited I am to unpack the work of this team and what it will mean for the life of our church moving forward. But there's always somebody in the room. There's always somebody who's thinking, that's great, Tyler. I'm so glad you're excited. Uh, But what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Uh, You may be wondering, why was this process even needed? And uh, I want to show you why. And it starts with the house. Not not a real house, but just an illustration um, uh, of how most of us engage in the life of of the church. Uh, most people, we, we've, we, we, we enter into the life of the church. We've entered in through the bottom floor, what author Will Mancini calls lower room thinking, lower room thinking. Now you, you may be wondering, okay, Tyler, what is lower room thinking? I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked. Uh, lower room thinking, Will Mancini. Now he had to have been a Baptist or a Presbyterian. And this is the reason I know that all of his points are alliterated with P. Uh, he had to have been some, some Baptist or Presbyterian at some point. But what is lower room thinking? Four things, says Mancini. Why, why do you come to Orangewood? Why do you stay at Orangewood Church? Four things. The first is place. Place. This, this can be the love of the building, uh, the love of the sanctuary, the, the love of the church architecture. Um, now, this value might be a, a lower value here at or- Orangewood since we worship in a sanctinasium. I've heard it used. Um, but I have heard some of you espouse the lower room thinking of place, even at Orangewood. Uh, and I've heard it said this way. I love that we worship in a multi-use space. I love our sanctinasium. I love that our facility is used day in, day out, 24-7. That's place. Second is personality. Uh, This is the love of the pastors and the staff. If someone asks you, why are you here? You'll say, I love Joe Creech. I I love, yeah, you can clap for that. I I love Ashley Evelyn and what she's doing with our kids. I I love Jack Michaels, yeah. yeah, don't clap for Jack. Um, <laughs> he, he's not here to defend himself. I, I love Jack Michaels. I, I, I love, and, and I love someone else on our staff, and you should love them, uh, but, but you stay because of the personality. So, somebody on the staff team. Third is programs. Uh, this could be a certain event, a group, a service that we do locally or globally, or it could be a class. Uh, someone, someone will ask you, why are you here? Why are you at Orangewood? And you'll say, I love the women's ministry. I love Orangewood School. I love Casa Hagar or, or the Damaris House. These programs uh, have really met you spiritually, and they've connected you with others in that same way that you feel connected to them. And you have experienced some great shaping in your life by these programs. The final one is people. People. This is the relationships in the church. It could be people in your community group. It could be just the relationships formed over many years in the life of the church. And someone asks you, why, why are you at Orangewood? You would say, I'm here because of the people. I, I love the people. 
and, and uh, these images of people will come to your mind that you love, um, these images of people who have walked with you through life, through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Place, personality, programs, and people. Now, I want to stress, this is very, very important. Please listen to me. Lower room thinking is not wrong. It's not wrong. It's not unbiblical. Lower room thinking is actually good in some senses. But lower room thinking cannot be the primary reason for why we should engage or stay at Orangewood. And the question is, why? Why? What is the linking thread between all four of these things that make up lower room thinking? They, they have a common thread through all of them. Do, do, do you recognize what it is? They all have an expiration date. At some point, they may end someday. Uh, earlier this year, um, I had the privilege to attend one of our community groups that's part of Orangewood Church. And uh, we, we got together, and it was a get-to-know-the-groffs time with our family. Uh, because of COVID, it feels like I'm still getting to know some of you. Um, and uh, we were with this community group, and they were wonderful. Uh, we felt so loved. We felt so encouraged. Um, they were so kind and gracious, uh, so thankful that I had come to be the lead pastor of Orangewood Church. Um, and in that moment, right as they had finished encouraging me, I, I wanted to call them out of a little bit of the lower room thinking. And I said to them, and I can't remember exactly how I said it, uh, but it came out like this. Well, I am grateful to be here and to be at Orangewood Church. But as you guys know, I am simply an interim pastor. And I killed whatever buzz of love was in that room. Uh, and, and I confess that now. It was too soon. I'd only been here six months. And, and looking back on it now, I, what I was trying to go for, it just did not work. I confess it. I admit it. It was too soon. Uh, that, that group was probably looking around thinking, is he going to leave already? He just got here. And no, I'm not leaving. But I was trying to call our people out of the lower room because it cannot be about me or anyone else. There has to be a calling we are united to together that incorporates all the things we love about the lower room. But we need to travel upstairs in the house and grab hold of upper room thinking. Now you may be wondering, what's upper room thinking? I'm so glad you asked. The purpose. And of course, Mancini has to use a P. The why. The mission for why Orangewood is here. The mission that will not waver, that will not change. The mission that will be our true north on our compass and our anchor, no matter the storms that we face or the things that change in the lower room. We need a greater vision that unites us in the upper room. We need a purpose that we're always being called back to for how we make decisions. We need a, a mission mandate that is carried so deep in our bones that it can't help to transform our lives and the lives of those around us. That is upper, upper room thinking. And that will survive no matter what changes. And that's what we need as a church. And today, I have the great privilege to unveil for you what a small group in our church worked so hard to craft that was endorsed unanimously and approved by our governing elders that carries the support of all of our elders and deacons and staff and that I have been praying since last year to share with you. 
Our mission at Orangewood Church is simply this. Inviting every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. Uh, You may have seen our new logo, and uh, our new logo is great, uh, but a logo is just a tool to serve and remind us and point us to our mission, inviting every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. That's, that's our mission. That's our why we are here, inviting every person, no matter race, no matter uh, socioeconomics, uh, no matter political affiliation, no matter the addictions, no matter uh, what has happened in your past, inviting every person. Inviting every person, no matter your age. Inviting every student into the life-changing story of Jesus. Inviting every child into the life-changing story of Jesus. This is good news for every person. And with the remainder of the time I have, I want to share why this is our new mission statement from Scripture and why this will guide us as we move forward to 2026 and 50 years in the life of Orangewood Church. Three questions uh, we must answer today on why is Orangewood here? Why why is Orangewood Church here? First, what's our longing? Second, what's our issue? And finally, what's our answer? First, what's our longing? What we find in this scripture passage on the road to Emmaus, the longing we all feel inside, whether we are a Christian or not this morning. In our passage, we find these two travelers, they're journeying on their way home from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're debating about the things that had happened in Jerusalem uh, concerning this man named Jesus. And we find them in this passage, they are disillusioned, disappointed, and sad. This is what we read in Luke 24. While they were talking, discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Uh, But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Uh, These two men are experiencing longing unfulfilled. They they had hoped for a a different outcome in their life. They're searching for something, searching for meaning and purpose. And it is a longing that we feel in this life. Trying to make sense of uh, how does my story serve a purpose? How, How does my life fit in with some greater story? The writer of Ecclesiastes gets to this longing. This is how he puts it. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. There's a longing that exists within us like an unquenchable fire. Eternity, eternity in our hearts. And that is what these two weary travelers on the road to Emmaus have experienced. Um, I love the way the author Ronald Roheiser puts it in his book, Holy Longing. He says this, there is within us a fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, in the deep recesses of the soul. At the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, psychology, and religion lies the naming and analyzing of this desire. Rollheiser says that there's this desire at the center of your life and mine, this eternity in our hearts, this longing, and every person on the planet is trying to make sense of that longing, that reality inside of them. 
They're trying to speak to and deal with the longings that they feel, the aches, the utter aches in our soul, trying to name what is my purpose in some larger story. But the problem is, in our modern culture, as much as our culture has tried to supply an answer, we find ourselves feeling much like the wearied travelers on the road to Emmaus. Elizabeth Bruning is an acclaimed journalist. She's written for the Washington Post, New York Times, and she now writes for the Atlantic. And she is dialed in on this issue we find in our culture. It's inability to speak to our longings. And this is what we read. She writes this. As a society, we have absolutely no coherent story, none whatsoever, about how a person deals with the longings they feel inside. Bruning is imploring us to see that the modern world with no God or at best the universe, I'll put the universe in air quotes, uh, it it cannot solve our longings. Uh, We we keep pulling back the layers to our soul, but only find there is a fundamental dis-ease, as Rollhauser put it. There's an ache that won't go away. And Bruning is asking you a question this morning. What is the story that you are in? Uh, Can it make sense of reality? Can it solve the longings that you feel, the aches inside? Now, now Bruning is only telling us what other cultural commentators and authors have been trying to tell us for years, and it's this. In our modern world, we don't have a story that makes sense of reality, that makes sense of the unquenchable fire that we all feel. And our longing has turned into our issue. What's our issue? That's our, that's our second question. What's our issue? And, and we see the issue with these men on the road to Emmaus. It tells us this in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Uh, these men uh, did what we all do with our longings. We put our hope somewhere and into something. These men didn't realize their story was going to find its true fulfillment in the greater story, but their disappointment and sadness speaks to the reality that we have all felt as we've plunged our hopes into something that has only left us exhausted, overwhelmed, insecure, disappointed, and worried. I have a confession to make this morning, and it needs to stay here. Is that okay? I cry at the end of every Pixar movie. (laughs) Every last one of them. And I don't know what it is, whether it's the story plot line or the inspirational music that just kind of builds at the end of the movie. I don't know what it is, but I cry at every Pixar movie, and it is so bad now that my family simply rolls their eyes at me when it starts happening. There he goes. There goes dad again. But we were watching one of the newest Pixar movies recently, Luca. Great movie. I cried. There are two main characters in the movie, Luca and Alberto. And the whole movie... uh, 
these friends, they have their eyes on one thing. One, one thing that they believe will give them freedom. One thing they believe when they get that, it will deliver them. One thing when they get it, it will save them. What is it? It's an Italian Vespa, if you've seen the movie, which is basically an Italian luxury scooter. I had to look that up. But the boys know that this Vespa will solve all of their problems. Once we get that, we will travel the world. They actually have an advertisement taped to the wall of their hideout that simply reads, Vespa is freedom. But like these boys, we have plunged our hopes into something to solve the longings. Uh, It could be your career uh, to just... You, you're dying to just get your name on the wall uh, or, or to just be seen as a success, whatever that is for you. Uh, for, for, for others of us, um, it, it, we, we've plunged ourselves into uh, a, definitely in our modern world, our looks, and, and we're, there's an image you're trying to maintain or you feel like you are always falling behind. Uh, It could be for you that just the constant need of others' approval and admiration. If if everyone loves me, if everyone likes me, if if, if I'm good with everybody, then my life is in freedom. Whatever that is for you, whatever that thing is, that is is what you're looking for. And in our modern culture today, we we see that there's so much emphasis placed on your identity. Uh, I must be true to who I really am. I, I must express who I really am. Once I can do that, then I will have freedom. But the Vespa, our careers, our looks, our constant need for others' approvals, uh, our need to be who I truly am, all this exposes the massive issue. And that is the self cannot bear the weight of our longings. About 10 years ago, Rachel and I were staying at a hotel and uh, I went to get on the elevator to head to the bottom floor. And as I was getting on that elevator, I must have been staying on that floor with a college football team. Uh, because as I got on that elevator, uh, these college football linemen get on that elevator with me. And we're, we're pretty snug. And um, I did what any rational person does in that moment. I start to look for that sign on the elevator. You know what I'm talking about? Where it says, do not exceed this amount of pounds. And uh, I'm starting to do that rough estimate. Okay, he weighs about that much. He weighs about that much. He weighs, I think we're in trouble. What do I do? Do I, do I just simply get off the elevator, play, play it cool? Hey, you guys take this one. I'll wait for the next one. Do I stay on and pray with every fiber of my being that we actually make it to the bottom? But then something happened, and you may actually already know this. I didn't know it at the time, but I'm super thankful for it. When you are over the weight limit, the elevator will beep at you. It'll basically tell you, I'm not going anywhere with all this. And so one by one, those those offensive linemen had to exit the elevator till finally we got to a weight where it would actually go downstairs. And then there we were. We we had a good laugh about that moment, Uh, me and those behemoth Men, <laughs> friends, please hear me. This is our issue as well. Psychologist Martin Seligman says, in our modern world, we've replaced faith and church and community with this tiny little unit 
known as the self. And Solomon says, the self cannot bear the weight of what we are asking of it. He, he says, it, it's only making our issue worse, not better. And, and, and please hear this. Solomon is, has no religious acts to grind. He, he's just assessing the data in his studies. This is the way the ancient prophet Jeremiah named the issue. The, the prophet's calling was to, to go and to speak the words of God to the people. And so uh, he, he is speaking to the people, God's rebuke and naming the issue. And this is what he said. For my people committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What we thought would satisfy has only made us more thirsty in the process. What we thought would be freedom has become a prison of our own making. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, if you didn't know that, uh, wrote a wonderful book called Mere Christianity. And in that book, he highlights the story of humanity and the human condition that is our issue. And this is what he says. All that we call human history, money, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, is the ter long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Friends, where have you plunged your hopes but have only found it is a broken cistern that can hold no water? Look down at the cistern that you're holding. Look, look in there. It, it won't satisfy you. It, it, it's bone dry at the bottom. The, the water just keeps leaking out. Where have you gone searching for something that you thought would be life-changing, but all you found is you plunged your identity into something that is killing you? Uh, you, you can't keep up, you're stressed out, you're overwhelmed, you feel like you're constantly falling behind. There is a prison that you are in and it is actually locked from the inside. H how do you get out? What's our answer? That, that's our final question. What's, what's our answer? In the first century, uh, the Jewish rabbi would uh, come to the local synagogue along with all the people from that community. And, and the rabbi would appoint someone from the local community to read the scripture for the day. They, they would stand up and read uh, the scripture uh, to the gathered assembly. On this day, a man named Jesus of Nazareth stood up and read the scripture. And this is the account of that moment. It says this. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As was the custom after the reading of the scripture, uh, this person would give a short commentary on the passage and, and what it was about. Um, they would hand over the scroll like Jesus did. They would, they would take their seat like Jesus did, and they would offer their teaching. But what these people discovered was this was a teaching like no other teaching they had heard. Uh, this was a teaching that they were surprised to hear. And here is Jesus' response as he sat down. This was his teaching. Today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, do you want to get out of the prison? Jesus declares to you this morning that he is the fulfillment of all reality. He is the only one who will truly satisfy the longings of your soul. He is the only one who can set the prisoner free from their own making. He is the one whom all reality has been pointing to. He is the good news that those Emmaus travelers needed to hear, that all their longings needed a better story. This is what Jesus does in explaining that passage in Luke 24. This is what we read. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, those travelers, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus invites them to see that he is the one to whom all history has been pointing. As we sang earlier in that song, that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. He is the one for whom all scripture has been waiting. He's the one who provides all the fulfillment. It's not our performance. It's not our accolades or resume. It's his accolades, his resume, and his life, death, and resurrection. All longings are satisfied. And the beauty of his life your life finds its true meaning. All we need, all we need, he has already accomplished for you. I love the story and the scene in the book of Exodus. You got to imagine that scene that uh, God has this mediator, Moses, who, who is going to lead the people out of Egypt. And he puts his staff in the water and giant walls of water pile up as the people are walking through. I mean, what an amazing scene. You're, you're walking through. There, there are fish swimming in these waters as you are walking by. I mean, it had to be an, imag- an amazing scene. And there were some that crossed that Red Sea who were full of faith, full of faith. Uh, they looked up at these giant waters uh, to their right and their left, and they yelled out, look what our God can do. Look at how powerful he is, how amazing he is. Take that, you Egyptians. There may have been some hand gestures back towards the Egyptians. I will not do those right now. They walked through on dry land, full of confidence. Guess what? They were saved. They were set free. They were delivered. But there was another group that was crossing that day. They looked up at those giant walls of water and they yelled out, are you guys crazy? We're going to die. They were filled with fear and worry. They were filled with doubt, just like me on the elevator. They were stressed out and overwhelmed. They were insecure. They didn't have what it took to get across. They walked through that dry land with knees trembling and palms sweating. Guess what? They were saved. They were set free. They were redeemed. Friends, this is the beauty and the uniqueness of the gospel because the freedom we are all looking for is not found in the amount of our faith. Thank God. The people who crossed the Red Sea, it was never about the amount of their faith. Their deliverance came from the object of their faith. Great or small, secure or insecure, 
The confident and the fearful both put their faith in a mediator to lead them across and to save them from the hands of their enemies and the clutches of death. And oh, my friends, oh, my friends, there is a better mediator. There is a greater Moses who doesn't just lead us to freedom, but he allowed the waters of wrath and judgment to come crashing down on him so you could bust out of whatever captivity you are in today and walk in freedom forever. Getting the gospel deeper in your heart is the only way the longing will be satisfied. Seeing what Jesus has done for you is the only way to leave behind the clanking chains. Seeing that his life is the better story, which your life desperately needs. That's how your life will change. Have you given your life to him this morning? This morning. Have you brought whatever faith you have, whatever it is, to the only one who will satisfy you like water in the desert? Our mission is simply this. Inviting every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. That's our mission. Today would have been our founding pastor, Chuck Green's 75th birthday. With everything I know and love about Chuck from the stories that I have heard, I know that he is cheering us on as we turn to the next chapter of Orangewood's history. In five years, it'll be 2026, and we will celebrate 50 years of Orangewood Church. Our history as a church has been marked by some incredible accomplishments of what God has done through Orangewood here locally and around the world, and we should always celebrate and cherish those. But I believe as great as our past has been, I cannot wait for what God will do in the years ahead. I cannot wait for 2026 to see and hear the stories of people whose lives have been changed because the story of their lives finally found the only person who could heal their longings. The story of people who finally broke free from the prison of their own making. The stories of people who have finally given up running to old, broken cisterns that are bone dry and cannot satisfy. To finally finding the only well that will never, ever run dry. A New York Times journalist flew from New York to the Australian outback uh, to interview um, some outback cattle ranchers. Um, and, and she wanted to get a glimpse of their life and, and how, how they lived that out. And um, she arrived, and the journalist at, at one point was perplexed about their setup in the outback. And uh, as any American does, we can't hold our opinions to ourselves, so she decided to share hers. And the journalist asked at one point, she says, I don't understand. I, I look out, I see your cattle roaming, but I don't see any fences. Are they, are, are, I don't see any fences. Are they even out there? Are the fences so far away I can't even see them? I, I don't want to act like I know how to do your job, but how do you keep track of your cattle? The outback rancher simply replied, oh, that's no problem. Out here, we don't build fences. We build one well. They always come back to the well. Friends, there's only one well. Run to him with your bone dry, empty bucket. Invite a few friends along the way and find in him all that you need. Let's pray.
Gracious, gracious Father, we, we thank you that our longings are not dependent on us to fix. <laughs> thank God. It's not our accomplishments. It's not our performance, but Christ's. All the promises of God have found their yes in him. Spirit, draw our hearts to what Christ has done. Set us free in his victory so that we can be people of love and freedom in an exhausted and hurting world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.